0: Let's turn, if you have your Bibles this morning, to Acts chapter 14 for the last time, for this foreseeable future at least, as we conclude this series that we have been doing, walking through these chapters of the book of Acts, this uh, series we've subtitled The Light of Salvation. Our title for the message this morning, week 22 in this series, is Declaring the Work of God." Declaring the work of God. So over the last several weeks, we've been really kind of taking a slow look, a slow walk through the end of these last eight verses. And the last two weeks, we kind of dug in on the first three set of verses here, 21 to 23. And I'll, I'll read those, and then we'll read our final verses for today. Now, when they, that's Paul and Barnabas, had preached the gospel to the city of Derby and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And then Luke concludes with these words here, starting in verse 24. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Persia, they went down to Attilia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church there together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples." So here we are at the very end of this series, which has been 22 weeks in this book, and that's been spread out over a big bulk of this year. Paul and Barnabas have finally made it back to Antioch in Syria. They, they sailed from that port there, uh, which was west of the city of Persia, where they kind of came in from Cyprus, if you remember that. They, they took a 400-mile journey by boat after they'd gone all the way back, walked all the way, 300 miles from where they had uh, gone from Derby planting churches, establishing elders, pastors, overseers, and all those places, got on a boat, sailed 400 miles along the Mediterranean, and then came back across land to the church. They've been gone for, for months, maybe even as long as up to two years or so on this journey throughout this area, planting churches, making disciples, preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. And when they get back The first thing they want to do is they want to share with these believers, these Christians, this church here in Antioch. The the Antioch that they used to pastor in, remember? They, They know these people. They love these people. They discipled these people. Now they've been gone for many months, maybe even a couple years. And it's to this church that they have longed to come back to and give this report. The same church that sent them out, they want to know what has been accomplished. And so the text tells us there in the words of scripture, they tell the church all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Now, if you remember this journey, and so imagine for a moment, so we're assembled as the church, right, and here's our missionaries, Paul and Barnabas, they've come back. It's been a few years, and we're eager to hear what God has done, and they begin to share that story. They say, hey, you remember we set out from here, and the the first place we went was Cyprus, where where Barnabas grew up, his hometown, and and we we got there, and like I said, when we were kind of looking at that, I think there was some limited success on the island, but but it wasn't widespread. We, We landed on the eastern edge, and we walked all the way across to the western edge of the island. But, you know, there, there wasn't all that many conversions until, until church. We, we got to the, the capital city on the far coast. And there we stood before the Roman proconsul, the, the Roman leader. This guy's a, a Gentile and a pagan who grew up with all their own worship. And, and through this powerful encounter, God did a miracle through us with this false prophet. And that man, this leader of the Roman people, Believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and so so the major convert on the island of Cyprus. I mean, people would have been excited to hear. It wasn't just yeah, yeah. Some some of Barnabas's family. I mean, they want them to come to know Christ, but they weren't just just people like that. We're talking the leader of the Roman legion on the island. He became a Christian. He and likely his whole. Household. I mean, that's a pretty amazing conversion story, right? And the church would have celebrated. Praise God! What amazing, what amazing work! And then Paul and Barnabas would have said, "Yeah." And so, so we left Cyprus and we traveled north. We took that boat up to to Persia, landed in that port city there in Pamphylia, and, and you know, it was it was rough work at first. We preached the gospel, and th- there's not really a lot to know. We didn't see a lot of conversion initially, but. But we felt led of the Lord to take that, that dangerous journey north, over the mountains, through the, the dangerous wilderness territory, and, and the Lord... Provided for us. He protected us. I mean, you guys know this is what Paul Mars would be saying. You know that that's a dangerous part of the world. Roman soldiers don't like to travel that. But we did, and God protected us and was with us every step of the way. And imagine the church saying, praise God, praise God, He's been so faithful. And they say, and, and it's more than just that, though He protected us from danger. We we finally arrived at Antioch in, in Poseidon. And when we got there, we began to preach. And there was great response. To the message of the Lord. It's been months of traveling and months of dangers, and yet, here we are now, the, the people were begging to hear more in that city. In fact, if you remember in Acts chapter 13, 43, it says, many Jews and devout converts to, to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas and believed the gospel there. No, no doubt, as they were telling that, there was celebration in the church, there was excitement in the church, and, and yet, Paul Barnabas would say, you know, but it, it wasn't all great, <laughs> 'Cause there was opposition that we faced there. And the Jews, they they actually their hearts became so hardened that, that they wanted to to try and, and kill us. And so there in Antioch, we we told the the Jewish people, Paul and Barnabas said in verses forty seven to forty nine of Acts chapter thirteen, Since you have thrust it aside and judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning now to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spread throughout the whole region. So, you know, back in, in Cyprus, it was the Roman proconsul and probably his family who became a Christian. Certainly that guy was a Gentile, but, but you're talking one Gentile, one Gentile's family here in Antioch of Poseidon. As Paul and Barnabas recount that, they're saying it wasn't, just, it wasn't just a Gentile and it wasn't just a group of Jews. We saw great conversion among Jewish people, converts to Judaism, and the Gentiles when we began to proclaim the gospel to them. And yet... Yet again, they would tell their friends, you know, the Jews whose hearts were so hardened, who rejected the message, again, they, they, they sought to kill us. And so we, we had to flee to the next city. And, and we went on, and we went to Iconium, and there we, we had great success. Again, the Lord did amazing things, and Acts 14 chapter 1 told us a, a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed there in Iconium. And yet, all those plots of violence that that they had been fleeing from, they they kind of came to a head, and and the Jews get so close to killing Paul and Barnabas that they have to flee Iconium, and they go to to Lystra, and there they would tell the church, man, God did another mighty miracle and healed this man paralyzed from birth. There's an incredible moment, and and God did an incredible thing, and yet all those Jews who hated us so much, they, they were close behind, and when they arrived in the city, they actually stirred up a mob, and Paul would tell them, I was stoned. See, see, the, see the marks? I mean, he would be bruised. He would still have these marks on his body and said, I, I was stoned, nearly nearly killed. And yet, God preserved my life there. And the church surely would have praised God and rejoiced and worshiped, right, hearing that report. And then Paul and Barnabas said, you know, we thought about coming home then. <laughs> he, I was pretty beat up and, and it, was, it was pretty tough. And yet, we felt led of the Lord to go on, and so we, we left there, and we, we went on. We pressed into to Derby, and there in Derby, Acts 14.21, we looked at says, "...they preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples." So like I, I argued before, what, what I think Paul and Barnes would have been sharing with the congregation at this point was it was there in Derby. We, we reached this Gentile-dominated city. I mean, almost everybody there is a Gentile. There's almost no Jewish people at all in the city. And it was there as we saw God save so many people and so many people become disciples of, of the living Jesus Christ that, that we knew we now could turn around go back, build up the church, plant those churches in all those previous cities, establish 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 elders, commit them to the grace of God, and come home to give you a report because without a doubt, God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. We saw it firsthand in Derby. And so as they came back and they began to to do all of that work, I think they would have shared with the church. The good news is as we've gone out, maybe even gone up to, to two years even, what has taken place is not just we found a few people kind of interested in Jesus and made a few disciples. The report Paul and Barnabas get to give the church is we went out and many, many people became Christians. And more than that, we planted churches in all of the cities that we went through. So, so church in Antioch, you sent us out for the gospel to go forward and we're here to report it did. We saw it firsthand. Many people came to faith and new churches have been planted. Kingdom outposts exist now all throughout southern Galatia so that the gospel work will go forward for generations. Even though we're here with you, where we long to be, with you who we love, there's still the gospel work being proclaimed in that region. That's great, incredible news, right? Right? So imagine if we're hearing that report from a missionary we have sent out. I mean, we're going to be praising God. We're going to be excited, right? We're going to be worshiping. We're going to be saying, wow, Lord, you are so great. You've done incredibly wonderful things. So surely that was the response of these people in Antioch. And the text tells us, indeed, they worshiped. They were excited at what they had heard. Not only had God spared Paul and Barnabas so many times and kept them from dangers and delivered them from plots, even sustained Paul's life with that murderous attempt, but the gospel was going forward and would continue to go forward through those churches that had been planted. So I'm always encouraged personally when I hear of success things like that from our own missionaries. And just, just yesterday, actually, I got an email from the Nash family. They're serving, like I said last week, in Botswana, Africa, right? And and they sent an email yesterday just kind of filling me in on what had been going on there on the ground. They said, we've been back on the field for a year now. So it's been it's been longer than that since they've been here with us. But they've been there in Botswana for a little bit over a year at this point. And they said, the Lord has been doing incredible things. We've gotten to teach classes and train up new pastors. And that speed the light vehicle that, that our church helped them purchase has been put to good use. They've been traveling all around that country, being able to now visit pastors, not just nearby the, the seminary, the Bible college that they teach at, but, but going all the way out into the rural areas they could never have gotten to before. They're able to go visit those pastors, encourage them and support them and build them up and help hear what's going on in those churches and give them support in those churches, and so this email that they send me and and telling me, hey, the, the support you have given us has enabled all of this to happen, and my response last night as I went to bed was just, praise you, God. That's incredible. Here we are from Little Nelsonville, Missouri, having an impact in Botswana through these missionaries that we have sent out. Lord, you are incredible. You are doing incredible things. Thank you for that privilege of partnering with those missionaries. So when we get reports like that, it causes me to worship and me to, to praise God, right? And that's what happened in the church in Antioch. And doing that, it, 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 when we get these reports, it should build up our faith as well. Because when we hear the gospels going forward in Botswana or, or went forward here in southern Galatia, what we should recognize is the fact that the command of Jesus is being obeyed and the promise of Jesus is being proven true. You know the Great Commission, right? In Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's true, and when we hear how that's true and how that's being demonstrated, we should worship and praise God and be excited, right? Right? (laughs) because <laughs> Jesus, he was with Paul and Barnabas, clearly he did miraculous signs and wonders, things Paul and Barnabas they could have never done on their own, right? You can't heal a man who's been lame from birth, you can't, you can't confront a magician and all his magic tricks, and all, I mean, all those great things that have happened clearly was the power of Jesus flowing through them, but the most credible, the most important way that we saw Jesus was at work with them, was that disciples were being made from people from totally different nations, totally different backgrounds, who had grown up worshiping totally different gods. They had responded to the gospel as it was preached. The church that Jesus promised he would build in Matthew 16, 18, it was going forward just as he said it was, and the very gates of hell couldn't stop it. Paul and Barnabas didn't have to come back and say, man, we tried. We tried our best in southern Galatia, but it was so hard. The people are so resistant. It's a closed country. I'm so sorry. You know, maybe we need more support. We need more people. No, they said, we went, we preached, and Jesus saved people from the nations. And in the same way, Jesus is with the Nash family in Botswana. As disciples are being made in that nation right now. The church is going forward there and the power of the gates of hell can't stop it in that country. So I know that we have spent weeks upon weeks slowly walking through all of this. And, and getting into those details, I think, is really important because there's so much to unpack and pull out and learn from. But, but if we were to step back today and kind of take that bird's-eye view, the 10,000-foot you know, overlook here, and say, okay, if we were the church hearing this summary for the first time, we've, we've not been with Paul and Barnabas on the journey. We're just hearing this is what has taken place as they share with us. We should feel a sense of amazement and joy. And worship pushing forward in our hearts at these things, right? Because Paul and Barnabas are declaring and demonstrating is that the power and the faithfulness and the trustworthiness of God is all true and all perfect. What's amazing for the people who would have been listening to this is that they realized probably more clearly than you and I do initially Because they were more familiar with the Old Testament, how much what they were seeing unfold was a fulfillment of what God had been saying hundreds of years before they lived. These aren't texts that we we typically think about as much. We we spend a lot of our time in the New Testament, and and I think rightly so, because it's so clear in in showing us who Jesus is and what he's done and the fulfillment of the things that that were, were prophesied in the Old Testament. And yet if we understand the Old Testament well, we start to see with greater depth and greater appreciation those fulfillment passages. So, for instance... Paul and Barnabas, who were so steeped in the Old Testament world, who preached Jesus from the Old Testament, that's what they were doing. They hadn't written the New Testament letters yet, right? So they couldn't say, well, as I wrote in Romans, right? He said, here's what the prophet said, and here's how Jesus fulfilled it. And they were explaining that. So they would have known, and they would have been preaching and sharing with the church texts like Malachi 1.11, where we read, From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says Yahweh of hosts. That text, Paul and Barnes would say, you remember how how Malachi said this is what would happen? It's happening. It's taking place right now. What Zechariah said in in chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 of his book, sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares Yahweh. And many nations shall join themselves to Yahweh in that day, and they shall be my people. And they would say, that's true, we were there, we were in Galatia, we were in another nation, and they're coming to Jesus, and they're joining the family of God. And what Jeremiah prophesied in in chapter 16, verses 19 and 20, he says, O Yahweh, my strength and my stronghold, my refuge on the day of trouble, it is to you that the nations shall come from the ends of the earth. And they shall say, "Our fathers have inherited nothing but lies, worthless things in which there is no profit. Can a make? Can a man make for himself gods? No, such are not gods. One day, what Jeremiah is saying is the peoples would realize all their religion, everything they grew up with, all the false gods they worship—they're just that. They're worthless idols. And Paul and Barnabas would say, "We were there. We saw that." Pagans who had worshipped as far back as their families could ever remember false gods, idols, they rejected them, they saw they were worthless, and they turned to the one true living God, to Yahweh himself. And what the prophet Isaiah said in chapter 60, verses 1 to 3, it's happened. He says, arise and shine, for the light has come, and the glory of Yahweh has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people's but Yahweh will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. They would say it was dark where we went. We went into one city and they thought we were pagan gods. They thought we were Zeus and Hermes. They wanted to offer a sacrifice to us. That's the level of darkness, But, but the light of Jesus broke in. This was fulfilled. Psalm 22 is true. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to Yahweh, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to Yahweh, and he rules over all the nations. All the nations. He's the God over them. It's, It's not just he rules over some of the nations. He rules over the nation of Israel. He rules over the nations, all of them. He's the true king. And when we went and we proclaimed, people bowed down. God was fulfilling his ancient promises. He was making clear the plan that he'd always had from the beginning. It was never about one family, never about one nation having all the blessings, all the salvation. He came to draw to himself people from all the nations, all the tribes, all the languages, all the people groups. And he is fulfilling that. So surely seeing that in Antioch and hearing Paul and Barnabas tell about that in Antioch, it would have created joy and worship in their hearts, right? Right? And it should do that for us too because those things are just as true today as they were then. And yet, here's what I would argue. At the end of all of this, after 22 weeks of walking through these texts, after all the weeks we spent just on this first missionary journey and seeing the fulfillment of these things taking place in each step along the way, I would argue you and I, Hearing this, seeing this, should rejoice and worship even more passionately than the church in Antioch did. Because when Paul and Barnabas said, A door of faith has been opened to the Gentiles, you and I don't just get to go, Wow, praise God that happened. You and I get to go, We know that's how we came in. That's that's the good news for us. We've experienced that. Not a single person in our church, as far as I know, has Jewish lineage. Every single one of us, we trace back our ancestors. We're among those pagans. We're among those nations all spread across the world. We're from people who were far off from God. We are not part of the blessing, covenantal people of the Old Testament. We're the people who are the enemies of God throughout the Old Testament. And yet, here we are today. What are we doing? We're worshiping the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And we're sitting here as redeemed sinners who have been adopted into the family, grafted into the kingdom, called the true Israel. Because Jesus Christ saves all who believe in him and follow him, no matter where we come from and what our background is. So, so here's my, my encouragement to us there. Our challenge is that if the people in Antioch would rejoice and worship that God had opened the door of salvation to the Gentiles... If, if the Jews, if you remember back in Acts eleven eighteen, 18, when Peter got sent to Cornelius' house, and that one Gentile family believed there, right? And they responded, the Jews, hearing that report, responded saying, glorifying God, saying, well then to the Gentiles, God has also granted repentance that leads to life. If they would worship God, if they would rejoice, if they would be moved by knowing this door had been opened and Gentiles were coming into the kingdom, how much more so? You and I, The very recipients of God's saving grace, the ones who He has enabled to repent and find eternal life, the ones who have seen the light of salvation, the ones who have come to Jesus as our Savior and entered in through that door He has opened, how much more should we worship and we rejoice today? Because it's not just theory to us, it's not just praise God, that's great news. It's yes, this is how we are here. That's our experience. The message is more personal so it should be more beautiful to us today here in Nelsonville right now. I recall reading this this illustration that just so powerfully struck me in understanding how we should be responding, how we should be thinking about this. The story is this. There was a, a professor of history who worked at a, a very notable university, had advanced degrees, PhD in history, very uh, well-credentialed academic individual. And in his office, he had a large piece of stone, very heavy, very big, you would notice it right away, and, and he wanted you to notice it right away. In fact, when he'd go in his office, he'd open his door, and he'd, he had the stone right there, and he kind of slid it a little bit, so it was the, the doorstop. So you walked in, and, and the door is held open by this, this huge stone sitting right there, because he wanted everyone to walk, who walked in to see it, and then to, to acknowledge it, and ask, you know, what is this, this giant stone here? Because he, he was proud of it, and wanted to talk about it. At the same time, there, there was an older woman who lived not too far away, but just in, in a modest home with, with no advanced degrees, and there weren't many people who, who went to visit her, and she had a stone that, that looked pretty similar, but it was much, much smaller. And her stone didn't hold open the door, and it wasn't, you know, central in the room. It just sat on the fireplace above the, the mantle, in a place of honor, a place she sat every day and looked at it. But, but if you came in, you could easily, easily miss it. It wasn't obvious and in the way. The history professor with the giant stone that he had in his office, he would beam with pride as he talked about it, steered every conversation he could. He would tell about how he was able to get that stone. He had, he had tracked it down, it had cost a, a, a quite a amount of money in order to get, get it purchased and then safely brought here to, to be in his office and he would, he would say with pride, yes indeed that stone, it's, it's part of the infamous Berlin Wall. And he began to rattle off very impressive facts about the stone and the wall. He would talk about how that wall, if you, if you remember, was built in, in 1961, about 15 years into the, the Cold War. It was erected at that point because at that, at that time, people were fleeing East uh, Berlin over to West Berlin by like 1,000 people a day trying to get out of the Soviet control into the, the freedom of the Western side. And so this, this wall was erected 27 miles long. There's actually two parts to the wall. It, it was one on each side. And in the middle was a 160-yard wide gap that they called the death trap because they filled it with guard dogs and machine guns and trip wires. And if you made it over one wall and into that, you would, you would die before you could get to the other side. That was the intent. And yet that wall, if you know your history, came down very famously in 1989, right? The gates were opened from the east to the west, and people began to flood through. And on that first day when it happened, people began to, to even attack the wall, right? And as the gates were open, they were going through. They were, they were smacking the wall with hammers and breaking pieces off of it and creating new holes. And eventually heavy equipment was brought in, and the whole wall was demolished, right? And the history professor, he, he knew all the facts, and he could tell you everything about it. And he would give amazing details and all these wonderful things about the wall. And he could even show you a photo of the wall and say, you see that section right there? That's, that's where this stone, this is that stone right there in the photo. And he knew, he knew it all. He knew all the, the details about it. But the older woman, it wasn't like that. She rarely talked about the little piece of stone that she had. But if you pressed her on it, she would acknowledge, yes, it's, it's a piece of the wall. And if you asked, how did you come about that? She would tell you, well, I I picked it up on November 9th, 1989. And if you could really get her to talk about it, she would tell you with emotions and tears. She had been a very young woman in 1961. She would just been married a few months before. And her life was radically changed on that day. August 13th, 1961, she woke up and she found that barbed wire had been erected between the East and West barriers of Berlin and she was now separated from her husband who had been working on the other side of the city and within weeks those temporary barriers became that massive stone wall and she was cut off physically from her husband she wasn't able to see him in person until November 9th 1989 28 long years later when those gates were finally opened and the people were rushing through and the, they were smashing at the wall and pieces of it were flying off, she bent down and picked up that small piece of stone that day. And as she did, she looked up and she saw her husband for the first time in all those long years coming to embrace her. Now, which of those two people, which of those two people do you think more deeply appreciated what they had? the history professor, who had all this great and true knowledge. He knew great and important things, and he could carry on hours and hours of conversations and give lectures that people would love to attend. And he got all of this great knowledge through diligent study and memorizing and examining records. Do you think he appreciated the giant stone he had? Or do you think this one who had all this experience with that wall personally, and even though it was a small piece, It was a personal reminder to her of what had separated her and isolated her and caused her decades of pain and suffering and loss, but now was broken down and removed. Who do you think valued what they had more? I I think all of us would agree. It's, It's that personal experience that she had that makes that piece of stone, though it's smaller, though maybe she doesn't know all the facts that the professor knew, all the broad implications of what the wall meant in global history and all of those things, still she would have deeply, more deeply appreciated what she possessed right you know jesus tells a very similar parable and asks a very pointed question in luke chapter 7 verses 41 to 47 he says this a certain money lender had two debtors one owed 500 denarii and the other owed 50 and when neither of them could pay he canceled the debt of both now which of them will love him more that's the question jesus poses and he poses it in a group, and a Pharisee named Simon answers and says, the, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. Jesus said to him, you've judged rightly. And then turning to a woman who was there with them, he said, now do you see this woman? When I entered your house, Simon, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. And you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet. With ointment, therefore, verse 47, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, and she loves much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. The whole point of Jesus's illustration here is that for the one who's experienced the depth and the power and the radical nature of forgiveness from God, His grace, overcoming the barrier, right? Removing the separation, drawing that lost person to himself. The one who has been saved and knows from what they have been saved, knows how unworthy they are, knows how impossible it would be to be made right with God on their own. That they needed God's initiating sovereign grace to break in and do this great work. The person who knows that and sees that, they love much the one who has saved them. The one who who does not just know that yeah, God opened a door for the Gentiles. Praise God. Though, you know, they had no hope of salvation on their own. Their ancestors had made and worshiped false gods and their lifestyles and their paths were full of, of enmity towards the one true God. The one who just knows that is very different from the one who knows that and yet, because that's them has then also heard of the perfect life and the substitutionary death and the victorious resurrection of Jesus and believes that Jesus will save them, though that's who they are, that's their past, that's their identity, that Jesus will indeed forgive them and redeem them and save them personally. The person who has experienced this and knows the depths of what they've experienced will much more deeply appreciate the gift of salvation than anyone else can. So it's one thing to know and to say, Jesus is the light of salvation to all who believe in him. That's a true, glorious statement, and you knowing that should produce some worship and you, should produce some joy, and you should produce some excitement in you. It's true, and it's glorious, and in Antioch of Syria, when they heard that and they understood that, they worshiped God. They they said, yes, you're declaring the work of God, that's true, praise him, we worship him, and yet... It should be a far deeper thing to us here today in Nelsonville because we've experienced salvation in this way, not just heard of it. We are the Gentiles who were brought in. We are the ones who lived on the other side of the wall and have now gone to cross the barrier as it's been broken down. We are the ones who have deeper joy, deeper appreciation, even more passionate worship than anything that could have been present in Antioch in that day. Because it's a greater thing that we get to say. We get to say Jesus is the light of salvation to me, an undeserving sinner who believes in him. What is so astounding to me, and what I try to stress with the the kids last week in the message too, is that we're part of something far bigger and grander than we could ever fully grasp here and now. The true church of Jesus Christ, the number of all his people from all the nations and tribes and people groups and languages across all of history from, from right here in 2022 in Nelsonville all the way back to what I think is probably AD 47 there in Antioch of Syria when they returned. And, and more than all those churches in, in Galatia that Paul and Barnabas planted were bound together, united in Jesus as a new people, God's people. The kids can, can come back as we're going to take communion in just a moment. As Paul will later write, We're all bound up together as a new creation, the people of God, unified with a body of other believers from all these other nations, all these other points in time, far greater than what we could ever imagine. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 to 6, he says, "...for there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your calling." There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. All. He says, if you are part of the church, it's the same. No matter where you're from, no matter what your past is, there's one way to salvation through Jesus Christ. There's one family of God you're adopted into. As I said, we're not going to get to heaven and find there's streets set aside for people related to one another or people who grew up in this geographical region. We'll get into eternity and we'll be part of one big family of God altogether because we're united to Christ and to one another through him. And so one of the most tangible ways we get to remember that great truth and we get to proclaim that great truth over and over again is through partaking of the Lord's Supper, as Christians have done since the very beginning. In every one of those churches that Paul and Barnabas planted in the southern Galatian region, they would have led them in the Lord's Supper and instituted that as an ordinance for that church to practice over and over and over again. And when they returned to Antioch in Syria, they would have worshipped God and they would have taken this meal of the Lord's Supper together that day. And we have the ability, the privilege, the gift of doing that today too. So Reed, if you'd come, Randy, if you'd come this morning and serve the elements to us, I want us to just take a moment and prepare our hearts to receive with real joy, with true gratitude, as an act of personal worship, these symbols of our salvation. And, and as always, if, if, you're, if you're not a Christian, if you haven't experienced what I'm talking about today, if you, if you don't understand that you were lost, if you don't think of yourself as a person who is terrible and undeserving and a wretched sinner who's lived in your own nature as an enemy of God and you've never moved from that realization to experiencing the power of God breaking into your life and saving you, if you don't love Jesus for who he is and how that applies to you, then, then don't take communion this morning. You can just let those go by because these things are symbols, Right? They will do nothing for the person who takes them out of faith other than bring further condemnation upon you on the final day. But as we're being served this morning, I want these words of Jesus to be so sweet to those of us who do believe in him. Who do trust in him in faith. Who love him because he has first loved us. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 6 verses 33 to 40. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they, these Jews listening, said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. For all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks upon the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So, this morning what we what we have here these are are symbols in our hands tangible physical reminders of who Jesus is but but this little wafer it's not the real body of Jesus right It's not magical bread last night my, my whole family came over as we were preparing for this morning and we set everything up and there was no there was no incantation when I put the elements together I've got one thank you This is a symbol a reminder a representation of something far greater. See, the Jews wanted a little piece of bread like this on that day, right? They, they wanted to say, they said, well, well give us the bread they will give us eternal life. We can just eat some bread and live forever? Yeah, let's, let's have it. And Jesus says, you don't understand the bread of life. It's not something you eat. It's not this. It's me. You have to believe in me. You have to trust me. You have to understand that what's going to happen to me is I'm going to go. My body is going to, to be broken because you have failed. You have sinned. And I'm going to go and I'm going to take all those on me. And so, so on the night when Jesus was betrayed, they, they ate a meal together and they celebrated. And this, this practice was established on that day, but it wasn't just a snack. they had already had the, the full supper. What Jesus did afterwards, he took the bread and he took the cup, was say to them, there's something greater you need to understand. And I want to show you this little piece of bread. It's not just a piece of bread. It's a, it's a reminder to you. It's a symbol to you of what I will do to save you, my body will be broken. The true bread of life will be broken for the sins of your people, my people. So that as you and I, we partake of this today, we get to proclaim again and remind ourselves again that Jesus died to save you and me. No matter where we've come from, those of us who believe in him, he is our salvation. Let's eat this piece of bread together this morning. Likewise, when we Take this cup and it's filled with the the fruit of the vine. It's it's not really truly the blood of Jesus. It's grape juice that I filled these cups with last night. But it's a symbol and a reminder of the blood that he shed. Jesus died, gave his very life so that you and I could be fully forgiven and granted eternal life with God. This cup we take is a declaration that though you and I Every one of us in this room, we are part of nations that were once held captive in darkness, once without hope, once lost and in desperate need. Now you and I are part of the family of God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ who's broken down the barriers, become the door through which we get to enter and he himself is the true light of salvation. Let's partake of the cup this morning. Christians, we should have such joy and such worship in our hearts that overflow in our lives. These words of of John 6, they're incredible. When we partake of him, the true bread of life, through faith, not through just taking communion, but through having faith in him in our lives every day, you and I, when we are saved, we will never be lost. He will not lose any of those the Father has given to him. He'll never abandon us. He will bring us home into eternity with him by the power of his amazing grace. We are so secure in the hands of our Savior. So, oh, how we should worship and love him today. So worship team, if you'll come, I asked them this morning if they would lead us in a song that's familiar to many of us. It's, it's a classic hymn of the faith talking about the amazing grace of God. And, and my challenge to you today is in Antioch in AD 47, they heard, declared to them the works of God and they worshiped and they praised him. And today we sat here and heard the works of God, but more than that, we've experienced this work of God in our lives. We are the Gentiles brought in. We are the ones he has saved by his amazing grace. So would you stand with me this morning and let's worship him. Let's be passionate. Let's get our affections set on him and praise him for who he is and what he's done. Let's sing together this morning.